until Dr. Nicole Nunez called me from California to see if I might be interested in hosting a podcast which featured an in-depth discussion on pediatric liver cancer, I had no idea that there even was a cancer of this type that would affect children, even though I had been hosting Help and Hope Happen Here for more than two years. As I quickly found out, there is most definitely this type of cancer, with 75% of it called hepatoblastoma. On today's podcast, I will interview Dr. Allison O'Neill, who is the director of the Liver Tumor Program at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, parents Christina and Cody Stiverson, and Kathy and Ben Braden, who both have been through hepatoblastoma with their daughters Addie and Avery, respectively, and Drs. Pei Wang and the aforementioned Dr. Nicole Nunez from Eureka Therapeutics in the Bay Area, as they talk about what their company is doing to help in this specific form of pediatric cancer. I appreciate all of you who will take the time to listen to these seven people, each of whom will give a presentation that is well worth listening to. going to begin my podcast by speaking with Dr. Allison O'Neill from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, who will be discussing a number of things that are central to understanding what this cancer is. After I speak with uh, Dr. O'Neill, I'll be speaking with Christina and Cody Stiverson, who will talk about their daughter, Adelaide, and the foundation for Addie's research. And then Kathy and Ben Braden will talk about their daughter, Avery, and the Owls for Avery Foundation. And finally, I will be speaking with Drs. Nicole Nunez and Dr. Pei Wang from Eureka Therapeutics and what they're doing to help these kids who've been diagnosed with heptoblastoma. So I'd like to welcome Dr. Allison O'Neill, who back in August of 2020, which is a long time ago, I had the pleasure of welcoming to my first podcast as my very first guest, and it is an honor for me to have her back on my show. Thank you for joining me and for joining us, and welcome back. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here, and I can't believe you've recorded 200 podcasts since we first met. That's it's exceptional. hard to believe, particularly since I didn't know if I was going to record my second podcast, so <laughs> it worked out okay. Yeah. Now, you're certainly a very appropriate guest to have on this podcast, as you are the director of the Dana-Farber Boston Children's Hospital Pediatric Liver Tumor Center. Can you talk about the tumor center a little bit and what your role is as uh, as its director uh, involves? Absolutely. So um, taking a step back, I, I actually direct the solid tumor program as a whole at Dana-Farber and Boston Children's. And then we're very fortunate within the solid tumor program to have individualized expertise by disease subtype, which... I think, you know, we're resourced and fortunate in the sense that there is a different provider for each disease subtype that is responsible for really not only keeping up to speed on national and international advances in their particular tumor type, but also engaging with collaborators nationally and internationally. Within that realm, I initially um, took over the liver tumor, the care of liver tumor patients over a decade ago. And more recently, we were afforded the opportunity to apply for a liver tumor center of excellence through Boston Children's Hospital and Dana-Farber, which really allowed us to build out an infrastructure with a program manager, an entire research team, 
a broad collaborative group of personnel invested in the care of these patients. And in doing so, it also allowed us to broaden our clinical trial portfolio to include many more opportunities for children who are fighting diseases particular to the liver. Um, and I, it's been one of the most amazing things I've had the opportunity to build in truth um, because it's something I'm so passionate about. Of course, that's great to hear. Now, our subject is hepto, uh, excuse me, hepatoblastoma. What is this cancer? If you could define how rare it is and what age group of children is, the mo- is its uh, biggest um, amount of uh, patients that it has? I think you alluded to this earlier on, but it is the most common uh, tumor of the liver occurring in pediatric patients. Um, It's a very primitive tumor in the sense that it looks a lot like fetal liver or um, very immature liver, and it never quite develops to mature liver in the sense that it can contain many immature elements. Um, It traditionally affects children less than five years of age. Um, The median is probably three years of age or younger, and it's very rare. Only about 100 cases are diagnosed per year in the United States. So you can imagine that many um, sites, if if there are not hospitals in large cities, may only see one of these patients every few years. Well, it's interesting because before Dr. Nunez uh, had contacted me, and as uh, you said, Allison, I've done 200 podcasts, I never knew that there was a pediatric liver cancer. So uh, I suppose I should have, but I was very surprised to hear that uh, children so young can get that. Now, in doing some research, uh, which I was doing in preparation for our talk, I read about um, the type of children that might be prone to this sort of cancer, including uh, children who are born prematurely, have a low birth rate, and have possibly have some type of genetic condition. Is this true? And can you comment on those factors? Yes, you've done really excellent research leading, leading up to this. You're right on all on all accords. The, the um, predisposition syndromes or the inherited syndromes that can um, increase the risk for hepatoblastoma are rare. They are in and of themselves rare. Um, they include disorders like Beckmann-Wiedemann syndrome, which is an overgrowth syndrome, other overgrowth syndromes in the same category, um, and occasionally other um, uh, abnormalities like APC gene mutations, which can also be associated with other colon issues or colon cancers. Um, you know, the, the list is long, but they're very rare entities. But I think the, bring, the thing you bring up regarding childhood prematurity and low birth weight is by and far the largest risk factor we know about. We know that the risk for developing a patoblastoma increases by almost 15 to 20 fold for babies that are born at less than a thousand grams. That's a very small baby, but those are babies that are premature that can um, be beautifully sustained in the NICU until they're of you know gestational age and size. But we know that just being part of that process, being born early and being in a NICU until they're of gestational age increases their risk substantially. Well, not only have I uh, learned some things about uh, the cancer, but I now know how to pronounce it properly. So we're going to pronounce it now as hepatoblastoma. Is that correct? Either way is right. In truth, I, I think I think we we learn how to say we each individually learn how to say it one way and stick with it for life. <laughs> well, trust me, I'm I'm certainly going to um, uh, do what what uh, what what you're doing. No doubt about that. Now, what are some of the symptoms of hepatoblastoma, and how difficult is it to diagnose? 
You know, the, um, it's a great question because we know the tumors arise in the liver and we, because we know that the abdominal cavity is a large quote unquote potential space, i.e. things can hide in the abdominal cavity until they're more prominent or large. It can take a while to diagnose a child with a liver tumor because that liver tumor can hide in the abdominal cavity for a while. But traditionally, children present with kind of a distended abdomen, often a firm or palpable mass. Even before that, they may have unexplained irritability, changes in their appetite or mood, um, sometimes low-grade fevers of, of no real etiology. The symptoms can vary, um, but certainly the vast majority present eventually with some form of palpable abdominal mass, either recognized by their parents, um, often by their parents, or by a primary care provider. Now, there's a much lesser known form of pediatric liver cancer called hepatocellular carcinoma. I think that that is probably maybe 25% of the liver, the pediatric liver tumors, as opposed to the 75% of patients who are diagnosed with hepatoblastoma. Can you explain the difference between the two? Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. That's the second most common tumor affecting pediatric patients. It more closely mimics hepatocellular carcinoma that is classically seen in adults, although with some exceptions. Hepatocellular carcinoma in children can occur at a young age, although typically occurs in adolescence or young adulthood. Um, Interestingly, it only arises in the context context of liver damage, i.e. cirrhosis or an abnormal liver architecture, in about 20% of cases. The vast majority of children who get hepatocellular carcinoma have a completely normal liver which is in vast contrast to adults. Hepatocellular carcinoma is extremely common in adults, but it often arises in the context of a sick liver, sick from alcohol-induced cirrhosis or viral cirrhosis, which is damage to the liver. So while we think there's some overlap in that entity, in truth, um, it behaves very differently in children than it does in adults, and it arises in a a fairly unique um, circumstance compared to adults. And how is hepatoblastoma normally treated? It's a great question. Um, There are two very important um, aspects of treatment of hepatoblastoma. One is surgical resection um, of of all, if not most, if not all sites of disease. And the other is chemotherapy. There are very rare circumstances in which surgical resection alone is enough and patients can be observed after resection of their tumor, but that is by and far the minority of patients. The vast majority need um, various amounts of chemotherapy, depending on what we classify as the risk of disease. And there are a lot of factors that go into risk um, adapting patients or stratifying patients. Um, but virtually um, almost all patients get receive both chemotherapy and undergo some form of surgical resection of their tumor. Now, I was looking at the cure rates uh, of this cancer. And you say that children with this disease have at least a 90% chance of being cured, which of course is a great prognosis, if their tumor is able to be uh, resected up front. Now, I assume as a layman that resected does mean surgery um, as opposed to anything else. Is that correct? That's right. Um, and you're right. If we look at children in aggregate, all children who have ever had a hepatoblastoma, the overall cure rates are, are quite high. But there are exceptions to that rule. So there are three main categories of patients, patients who can have their tumor, a solitary tumor resected in the upfront setting, patients who can't have a solitary tumor resected, but who can undergo chemotherapy, eventually getting them to resection, which is a surgery. And then there are patients who present at diagnosis with 
widespread disease, so metastatic disease. And it's the, the latter category of patients that, that are the most difficult to adequately treat. The extent of disease is probably a reflection of different disease biology. There's something different about the way those tumors grow. They need far more chemotherapy to achieve the same response rates or to get those patients to a surgical resection than do patients who have a smaller tumor to starve or a resectable tumor after a few cycles. So there's something biologically different and we're learning that difference and it, we're making progress in that regard. And my hope is someday we'll be able to adapt our therapies more meaningfully based upon the biology of these tumors. But we know that that cohort of children with metastatic disease are much harder to cure and require much more intensive therapy. Is the fact that this form of cancer can be difficult to diagnose, would those cases be the ones most likely to, to uh, metastasize or is it just um, maybe by luck one way or the other? That's a really great question and one we don't know the answer to probably. Uh, my, my guess and my hunch is that it's biology driven, not, um, not necessarily delay in diagnosis because among children who have metastatic disease, there are some who have an exceptional response to chemotherapy and others who don't. So, you know, if the smaller cohort of children who were, who had a delayed diagnosis that resulted in metastatic disease still respond well to chemotherapy, more often than not, they can be cured. But then there are some children whose disease just fails to respond from the get-go as you hope it would. And so it, at the end of the day, I do think biology is the primary driver in terms of response to treatment. Now, of course, before you mention the uh, problem um, of hepatoblastoma metastasizing. Where does this, uh, is there a part of the body that the cancer normally um, spreads to? And what does that do to the child's cure rate prognosis? Mm -hmm. It's a great question. As we know, the tumor originates in the liver. In some circumstances, the tumor can be multifocal throughout the liver. So there can be smaller satellite lesions that are throughout the liver that, as you can imagine, make it much harder to resect, com completely resect disease. And on occasion might warrant a liver transplant. Um, tumor can also spread to lymph nodes in the abdominal cavity, but the most common region of spread is the lung. And there have been studies that show that you can start to tease out risk factors about lung metastases. So for instance, patients who have metastases to both lungs are more difficult to cure than just one lung. More than 10 metastases, harder to cure, because again, it's difficult to resect all of those lesions or to achieve an adequate chemotherapeutic response at those sites. So the lung is definitely the area that we see spread to most commonly and that we have to strategize the best way to treat. In very rare circumstances, disease can go to the brain or bone. Um, but as I mentioned, that's rare and, and, and often after disease fails to respond to multiple types of therapy. Now, you treat a lot of different type of cancers. Where does um, pediatric liver cancer rank as far as um, difficulty to, to cure um, as compared to some of the others that you treat? I think it's the subcohort of patients with metastatic disease that are right up there in terms of our difficulty in curing these patients. We know that, that nearly half we will have difficulty in curing. We also know that other patients who present for all the world as easier to treat patients sometimes are difficult to treat and cure as well. When patients recur, 
or when their disease does not respond to treatment in the upfront setting, as we suspect they should, those patients are extraordinarily difficult to cure as well. And, and you had mentioned hepatocellular carcinoma earlier. We know that the vast majority of those patients cannot be cured. Well, I guess the, the good news on that is uh, most of the, um, the patients have, have uh, hepatoblastoma instead of um, the other version as if uh, the other version is the one that can't be caught, uh, cured, of course. Now, this 90% cure rate that transfers to the children uh, who are fortunate, are they able to lead pretty much normal lives, or is it a very difficult pa uh, path for them going forward because of the side effects that they uh, may have? It's a great question. And we are constantly trying to strategize ways to therapy reduce for patients with lower risk disease to diminish the long-term side effects. And then to, of course, intensify for patients for whom we're still not achieving the appropriate um, rates of success. But for all patients, the drugs that they receive from chemotherapy come with a host of side effects, which include um, high-frequency hearing loss, which can significantly impair cognitive um, development, speech, et cetera, social engagement, um, kidney irritation or abnormality that often recovers, but not always, um, cardiac or heart damage. So these drugs are not benign. I mean, they certainly result in cure, but they're not benign. And so seeking out alternative therapies that don't come with those same side effects is certainly warranted and an unmet need. And then for patients that have that undergo liver transplant or require a liver transplant to surgically remove all of the disease in their liver, you know, we have now tracked patients for over 30 years out from their liver transplants. And we know that they live seemingly normal lives, but they're on immunosuppressive drugs their entire life. They're at risk for secondary cancers. And we don't really know the health of a transplanted liver past that point in it from a child. So I think we have a lot to learn there, but it's it's not without risk and it's not without long-term consequence. So we certainly need to do better. There's a final question. You are the lead investigator working with Eureka Therapeutics on a clinical trial, which offers a novel um, uh, immunotherapeutic option with children who've relapsed uh, in their hematoblastoma battle. Can you talk about the trial, what it entails and what your hopes are for it? Absolutely. And I'm sure you will be speaking to others on the line about that as well. But um, I see it as an extraordinarily fortunate circumstance. And, and I say this often because it's very difficult to engage um, a, a industry sponsor in a trial oriented towards children. You know, thankfully, cancer in pediatric patients is rare. But just because it's rare doesn't mean we, we, need, we, we have to stop in our efforts to improve our cure rates and to decrease our toxicities. And so to have the opportunity to engage in a trial this novel for a pediatric cohort of patients, first in child, I mean, think is an exceptional opportunity. The, um, the therapy itself is an engineered T cell, i.e. a type of immune cell that is programmed to be able to detect and or target um, proteins or peptides or parts of proteins specific to these tumors with the hope of really honing down on the tumor itself diminishing side effects if at all possible, and offering children that don't have other options a novel therapeutic that can engage their own immune system to better fight their disease. You know, we're seeing so much advancement in the adult realm with regards to immunotherapeutics. And 
you know, we've that that progress has lagged a bit in the pediatric realm for a number of reasons. Our tumors are very different. They're less genomically complex. And we know that more complex tumors tend to be recognized better by the immune system for in, in engaging immune therapies. But but we also know that engineering a patient's immune cells may be the better avenue to take, particularly for pediatric tumors. So to be able to um, engage in this uh, protocol has been a really wonderful experience. And I, I really do hope that it affords these children um, far better alternatives than the ones we currently have available. I'll just say um, that the fact that you are involved in it is nothing but good news for these patients, for uh, Eureka Therapeutics and everyone else who has a concern about uh, this form of cancer. Thank you very much for taking the time to join me and us and uh, have a great day. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here and to see all these other faces. And I'm, I'm happy to stick around and, and hear more of what they have to say as well. That, that sounds great. And if anybody wants to, uh, at, at some point during the podcast, even if I'm not talking directly to you, make a comment that is absolutely uh, allowed and would be great. Now I'd like to introduce Christina and Cody Stiverson, who will talk about their daughter, Adelaide, and the found, uh, the foundation. And I'm going to ask the first question to Christina. I'm going to try to alternate as best I can. I'll take you back to November of 2015, as your daughter Adelaide, called Addie, uh, had been experienced high fevers. You described your visits to the emergency room as being frustrating, uh, which I'm sure they were. How long had these fevers been going on for, and what was the cause of your frustration? Mark, I just want to say thank you so much for, for having us on this podcast. I feel really privileged to be included uh, in this group of such accomplished individuals and to hear Dr. O'Neill speak um, has been wonderful. And so I will tell you up front that our daughter Adelaide was born at about 32 weeks and she was a two-month preemie. So building on what Dr. O'Neill said is she, she was a preemie, but we never anticipated anything different um, in the beginning. I mean, we were in the NICU, but by the time she hit six months, she was regular weight and everything was normal. And then about a couple months before her second birthday, she started to have some fevers. She was throwing up and I kept taking her in to our primary care doctor. And I, I kept getting answers like, oh, it's teething. It's a stomach bug. I felt like a crazy mom. And um, we would go to the emergency room for a possible UTI or, you know, they would come up with just about anything that wasn't cancer. Um, and what we later found out from when she was finally diagnosed is that most primary care physicians won't see cancer at all in, in kids in their 30 year career. So it, you know, we just weren't able to get diagnosed at a local level. And it was driving me to the point of, craziness where I knew something was wrong as a mom, but nobody could figure it out. And so that was extremely frustrating. And, and we are not alone in, in that beginning. Well, you aren't alone. And I have had many, many parents on this program and the complaint has been many times, and I'm not, we're not blaming the pediatrician. It's just the things that do happen, but diagnosis uh, can take much longer than hoped for and needed. And uh, that's one of the, the real problems. And people are actually uh, in, in some of the nonprofits are, are working on that. 
Now, you were living in Fairbanks, Alaska. I'm going to ask Cody this question, but you happen to be in Colorado visiting uh, thank, uh, family during Thanksgiving, and you've taken uh, Addie to urgent care there as her pediatrician could not find the cause of what turned out to be a, grapefruit, a grapefruit-sized tumor in her liver. Where did you go from there? Yep. Uh, and, and again, my thanks for setting everything up. It's, it's uh, an honor to be here. Um, we were very settled living in Fairbanks. Both of us were in the Alaska Air National Guard. Uh, and the reason we came down to Colorado was to visit my parents. And then I was headed to a training course in Oklahoma. Uh, and the first day I got there, Christina, who you know had kind of reached the, the end of her rope uh, as far as caretaking, had gone to a, um, a satellite facility for the Children's Hospital uh, located in Colorado. And they very quickly deduced that something serious was going on. And, and an X-ray turned into a CAT scan um, and then she called me that evening, my first day of training out in Oklahoma and, and gave me the, the news. And it was uh, just beyond shocking. And, you know, at, at that point, I'd, I'd been in the military um, 22 years and I, I, I really didn't know what to do. But I, I called uh, my supervisor and I said, I don't know how this works, but uh, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm, I'm going to, to be with my family. And so I got in a rental car, uh, showed up at three in the morning at, at the big children's hospital where they had been ambulanced over. Uh, and from there, it really started a 13-month journey. Um, we moved back into my high school bedroom uh, in Wheat Ridge, Colorado, a little suburb. And you know, I've, I've still got the the high school banners on the wall and and all that stuff. And uh, we removed the the door from the sliding door of the closet and made kind of a little nest for Addie when she was home. Uh, and then Christina's parents uh, flew from New York. Uh, we're we're really fortunate to have all four of the grandparents involved, but we were kind of wall to wall living in that house and in and out of of the hospital, sometimes for weeks at a time, sometimes for just daily visits. Um, and yeah, it just it it really started kind of a, a drastic change and everything was going on. You know, we had a house and two dogs and and careers and happily living in Alaska, and that all just came to a very abrupt end. Well, it certainly did. Uh, at least um, most of the people who have to go through this unfortunate diagnosis are living in the town where they're being treated, and you're uh, completely uh, in a new area, which certainly doesn't um, help the situation. Now, I'm going to ask Christina that uh, Addie uh, gets the diagnosis of hepatoblastoma. And my question to you would be, was were you ever? I mean, I know she wasn't feeling well, et cetera, and you couldn't get get the answers. But did cancer ever cross your mind? Um, and as an add-on, did you feel something was seriously wrong with her? Mark, I, I will say I was caught completely off guard. Completely, I had never been exposed to any childhood cancer situation. I hadn't known any friends that whose child ever had cancer. I, to be honest, I was completely shocked and blinded by the fact that my child had cancer. And uh, it, it's almost unbelievable to me now, but I, I really was completely shocked. I think when you, when you have a baby, you're in, you're in like this bubble of, you know, everything's going well and you're really just focused on the child. And, and then all of a sudden there's something wrong. You can't figure out. I, I didn't think it was going to be something serious, but I, I kind of ended up losing my mind as a mom. And it, it drove me to that point of something is wrong. And I was so frustrated 
Um, I never in a million years would have thought my child was going to get cancer, nor would I have thought a rare liver cancer that once we were diagnosed, I would not be able to even spell the name of the cancer. And just to remind, uh, remind you guys that at this time when Addie was diagnosed, her sister, whose nickname is Millie, was only six months old. So when Cody says that we had two sets of grandparents helping us out, uh, it, it was to help with the baby too, so we could focus on Addie. And that was also um, a really big challenge. So thanks for that question, Mark. Now, Cody, what did her doctor say while Addie was at Colorado Children's Hospital about her prognosis as her cancer seemed to be moving very quickly? Um, you know, it's, it's interesting because that night is a little bit of a blur. I spent uh, seven or eight hours driving back from Oklahoma and, and you know, just enlisted family and friends. And I, you know, I've got a couple of friends who are neurologists and emergency room docs. And, you know, I'm calling everybody. Uh, and, and really, they, they were Googling stuff because this isn't well known across the medical community. So um, I, I will say that I felt comfortable being in the hospital, but there was a little of that that's true. You know, there's some centers that see more of this. Uh, but even though we were at the U.S. News and World Report number one pediatric oncology hospital, this is not something they see very often. So I think the number they gave us was about 83% survival rate. And they said, um, and I'm, I'm roughly quoting, they said, if you're going to get a cancer, this is a pretty good one to get. Um, and of course, we learned a lot more about the journey then. But, um, you know, things that that Dr. O'Neill lives with day to day, those were all shocking for us. They, they were talking about her alpha feta protein level, which is a kind of a measure of, of how bad this cancer is. And it's, it's you know, normally zero to 12. And initially, Addie was at like 200,000. And that that sounds like a really daunting number. Um, but as we've stayed involved with this community, we know kids that at, at initial diagnosis are over 2 million. So it turns out that that's not, you know, the, the best prognosis for, for disease. So we all of a sudden were thrust as non-medical people into a really intense medical um, situation. And I would say that because it's rare, we were involved more um, with, with that decision-making than maybe you would be in a more normal standard of care uh, type, you know, procedure that was going on. Uh, and so uh, we, we really figured out, I think at the end of her first round of chemo, so about three weeks in, that that alpha feta protein level was not falling the way they expected it to. And we, we didn't know what that meant. And we certainly didn't know what to do with that information. But really what it, what it meant was that the, the cancer was resistant to the platinum series of drugs, uh, which is the normal frontline therapy. Uh, and, and that's where I think a big turn in our treatment came in because Christina kind of immediately started looking for, you know, second opinions and, and world experts. And I was really more on the side of, well, we're in the right place. So we'll just trust the doctors, but then the doctors were coming to us and, and asking us to help make decisions. So it was, it was really a scary time. Now, halfway through her chemotherapy treatment, what uh, the medicine she was getting was not working particularly, but fortunately she was able to have a liver transplant after her transplant were, and I'm asking uh, Christina this question, were you and her medical team feeling confident that uh, Addie might now be on the road to recovery? You know, Mark, I, I will tell you having a liver transplant felt amazing when we got that call and, and she had a successful full liver transplant. 
we were so grateful. Um, it, it was one of the best days. She f- recovered amazing. She felt amazing post-transplant. We couldn't believe it. And we had some of our greatest times with her um, because we hadn't started the cleanup chemo yet. She was just recovering from her transplant and it it was wonderful. What keyed us in to a potential relapse was that the AFP number that we were monitoring so closely was not falling the way they had said it would post-transplant. I mean, we thought we were just going to take this cancer out, this grapefruit-sized tumor out of her liver, and and that was going to be our answer. Um, But the AFP wasn't falling, and so that led us to have some more concerns. We still went on enjoying that wonderful time that we had with her. We still went on with cleanup chemo um, to try to get any last little bit that was hidden there, but nothing was coming up. Uh, initially, we didn't know what was happening until about her two-month scan. So that's when things started to change for us. And unfortunately, and this is a question for Cody, two months, just two months after the post-transplant, um, her cancer began to metastasize to her lungs as uh, that's the place it normally goes. And then five months later to her brain, was Addie able to have any type of decent quality of life during this period before her passing, which occurred just 13 months after her original diagnosis? Um, she, she did. She had uh, a really great period in her life. And I, I would say that we, we shared in that period quite a bit. Um, when the news came that, that it was metastatic, you know, this, this again, this top-rated hospital uh, the first advice sitting me down um, because Christina was actually packing our house up in Alaska. So I, I, I sort of took that meeting. Um, they said, you know, we've got nothing else. Uh, and and this, this cancer is spreading and it's aggressive. Uh, and we think you should just take her home at that point. Um, and I, I was, I was really shocked and, and I did not know how to respond. And I didn't know if we should keep fighting or if we should give up. Uh, Christina was adamant that we were going to continue to look for options. And so we, we tried uh, a few rounds of very hard hitting chemo. Uh, and, and we quickly learned that, that that wasn't working either. And then as a family, we made a decision that, you know, if there was something that was kind of non-invasive, something that wouldn't disrupt our quality of life, we would continue to try that. Um, but we were able to take her to Disneyland, uh, we we traveled uh, also to the East Coast. We took her to the Pez factory in Connecticut. Um, we we really focused on what she what we thought she would enjoy most every day. And uh, honestly, her biggest smiles came afterwards. And you know, Dr. O'Neill mentioned earlier that that this disease can kind of change and morph. Um, she never had a fever after the transplant, even though the the cancer was still was still spreading. So something changed in that cancer that her body no longer recognized. And I don't, I don't think she felt too badly, um, during those, those last few months of her life. And and we really, uh, were able to, to do a lot of positive things. I'm going to turn to Christina and begin to talk about your foundation that you started to honor Addie's memory called the foundation for Addie's research. What was your objective when you decided to start uh, your nonprofit? So, Mark, what we really felt strongly about um, was research. We we were desperate for more options for Hetty. I would have tried, you know, anything that was being researched that I thought could have saved her that that wouldn't have that would have still given her a good quality of life. 
Um, And we just ran out of options. So we are very passionate about research and finding more options for children like Addie that have this aggressive form where the chemo just just doesn't work. And then it morphs and it spreads and to the lungs and the brain. And uh, that's why we started our, our nonprofit initially. We had a lot of people that you know, wanted to do GoFundMe's for us while we were going through treatment. And fortunately, the military was covering our medical bills and we were living with family. So we really wanted to save that money that people wanted to so graciously give to us to put towards something in the future, like making a difference for future kids like Addie. And so we took kind of all of that money right after she died and started a research foundation And now we've had the foundation over five years and we've raised over half a million dollars towards pediatric cancer research, specifically to hepatoblastoma. And we've been part of several really amazing programs uh, with our research foundation. So I really, her legacy is really living on with who we can help in the future. And I'm really excited about it. Obviously her legacy is going to live a very long time. And you're really at the uh, infancy of it uh, in many ways. Now, Cody, your foundation is supporting the Children's Cancer Therapy Development Institute under the direction of Dr. Charles Keller, who was the Institute's founder. Can you talk about this institute, Dr. Keller, and what he's doing to pioneer research for uh, hepatoblastoma? Um, Absolutely. I I, uh, found Dr. Keller uh, actually through Christina's mom. She had reached out on social media and there was this kind of mad scientist genius up in Oregon who was really focused on rare pediatric cancers. So he's a a former oncologist that just didn't feel that drug development was moving fast enough and uh, wasn't coming up with enough solutions. Um, And so he uh, graciously accepted Addie's tissue and we were going to try to create cell lines to do research. And initially that was a hope that we could find something for her. Um, but when we followed through with it, it was so that we could find uh, hope for, for kids in the future. Uh, and so CCTDI and, and Dr. Keller look at kind of all angles, you know, and, and I think a good oncologist uh, doesn't need to understand genetics and some of those other drivers and components, but the great oncologists, and I would I would lump in Dr. O'Neill with this, really are looking for that that nth degree answer, you know, for these underserved populations and that segment that's not surviving. And so um, we we have looked at uh, several drugs and and several trials, and we hope to move forward with CCTDI uh, on a trial in the next year. Now, Christina, you've donated Addie's tumor, which will go towards research in this uh, hepatoblastoma fight. Now, we, we, uh, you mentioned legacy before. Does this donation just add to uh, Addie's legacy and give you comfort in knowing that her life will have even greater meaning than it already has? Mark, thanks, thanks for that question. That, that is, we are really passionate uh, about keeping her legacy alive. And really the tissue donation was really just the beginning for us. We're, we started to go after we donated her tissue, became involved with CCTDI, was looking at our community as a whole and really connecting the hepatoblastoma community. I will tell you, we did not meet another hepatoblastoma family until a year after our daughter died. There was nobody else being seen in Denver um, that we knew of. And we really felt 
isolated. And we started to look at these other rare cancer communities and how they were bonding together and how um, one foundation could do that and bring everybody together. And so we developed the Hepatoblastoma Resource Network in 2018 to tie together parents, researchers, and clinicians and surgeons and really unite that community to make everybody connected. So first what we did was we created a consolidated resource. It's called hepatoblastoma.org. It's not as easy to come up on Google as you would think, as we were able to get the domain name of the cancer, but Google's actually a harder nut to crack. But I remember when we were first diagnosed, I tried to search things and there wasn't a consolidated research of where a parent could go to figure out what this cancer was and how do you even spell it and what are common terms and where are the centers that specialize in this cancer and who are the lead researchers and what foundations support it. And so based on the fact that we didn't have that, that was a resource I wanted to create for people to bring the community together. And so since that time, we've had a couple of conferences and we hosted the first ever virtual conference. Thank you, COVID, right? In 2021, And we had people from 18 different countries that were able to attend because it was virtual. And it was really, really amazing to see people from feuding political countries and people that had never spoken before, uh, people that were up in the middle of the night, people that were signing on from their hospital rooms, and as well as our clinicians and our researchers And those were some of our parents that were desperate for answers to just talk to the right people and and basically not feel so alone. And I think that's really where Addie's Foundation has taken us. We still continue to do research, but now we have an even bigger purpose of uniting a community for kind of the greater purpose. And uh, it's been really, really exciting. And Uh, We're excited for the next event in 2023, which is going to be with Dr. O'Neill in Boston. So we're very thankful for that. It should be a great event, obviously. Now, Cody, in June of this year, you joined forces with Ricardo Garcia, who I've had the uh, honor of having on my podcast, um, uh, on his company, uh, Onco Heroes Biosciences, which is a biotech company. 100% focused on advancing new therapies for children and adolescents with cancer. Can you talk about Onco Onco Heroes and your hopes for its future? Um, Yeah, absolutely. Uh, They are a really exciting entity. Um, We actually were involved with Onco Heroes before they were even a business because we looked at the intellectual property that they bought up, a drug called Volasertiv. Uh, and they want to use it in, in their first round against rhabdomyosarcoma, another rare pediatric cancer. Um, but it it could have some efficacy over on the hepatoblastoma side. There needs to be some more testing done. Um, so we we like that uh, they're excited. Uh, they're very pure. They're they're very driven. And and to be frank with you, I, I get tired when people are like, well, we're we're not doing this for the money. Um, they are absolutely doing it for the money. They they want to make a lot of money and they want to go out and solve more problems with that money. 
Um, so I, I wish everybody who researched uh, pediatric cancer effectively got a, a billion dollars a year. You know, that, that would be great. So the fact that these guys are trying to turn this into a successful business model um, for really, really good reasons, um, I'm, I'm pretty bought in. And they, they have a, a host of people um, who scientifically like what they're doing and from a business standpoint, like what they're doing. And um, I, I wish them all the success in the world. I, I want their first trial to be a wild success. Uh, and for them to put hepatoblastoma on the plate and, and a lot of other rare uh, pediatric diseases. So I wish them all the best. As a final question, I'm going to ask both of you this. I'll start with Christina. What lessons have you learned from Addie that I imagine stay with you every day? Mark, thank you so much for just letting us be here to to keep her legacy alive. You know, the biggest thing I learn is to live in the moment. Uh, I have two other children. Uh, we adopted a baby after Addie passed away. And so now we have a four and a seven-year-old, both girls. And I really just take her memory with me every day. It makes me a better mother. It makes me more compassionate towards other others. It makes me driven towards cancer research and awareness and making a difference. Um, I still work on, you know, I still have my military career, but I also get to do pediatric cancer research. I get to be run the network and get all these amazing people together and involved. And I just got certified as a grief coach. And to be honest, you know, people will say to us a lot, I can't imagine anything worse than losing a child. But my answer back to that is I can't imagine if Adelaide was not in our lives for three years and 17 days and created that impact for us and brought joy to the rest of the world because of her existence. And I also can't imagine not living my life fully in honor of her because she's not here and really being there for my other two girls um, right now. So, so that is really what I take with me um, from Adelaide. And I'll let Cody tell you a little bit too. Sure. Well, Mark, her answer is a lot better than mine, but uh, I think for me, it boils down to uh, my first job uh, after college was as a fighter pilot in the Air Force, and um, I certainly wasn't grown up then. It's not one of the criteria uh, for being a fighter pilot in the military, uh, but meeting Addie, you know, my firstborn uh, was was part of the process, and then supporting her through her disease and and really giving her um, the best life that we could, uh, that's, that's helped me grow up a lot. And, and the legacy that I take from her, uh, is to live way more outside of myself. And so I, I owe that to her. And, uh, like Christina says, I, I would never wish for a life that, uh, didn't include her and in her memory. And, uh, Cody, where can people get in touch with you if they'd like to learn more about, uh, Addie and of course your foundation? Um, the easiest way is through hepatoblastoma.org. Um, and I would spell it, but nobody would be able to write it all down. So uh, if, if you get close, Google will probably fix it for you. Uh, and then we also have uh, addiesresearch.org. But I, again, the, the disease community, we're trying to just keep it as tight as we can. So hepatoblastoma.org is the best way to start, and, and you'll find the most connections in our community. Well, thank you very much, uh, Cody, you and Christina, for coming on to my podcast. You've given a, a beautiful um uh, story about unfortunately tragic, but beautiful, uh, certainly in, in, in certain ways about your beloved daughter and the foundation and what you're doing to try to help these kids in the future. And I want to wish you the best of luck. Thank you, Mark. Thank you.
Now I'd like to turn our podcast to Kathy and Ben Braden. Thank you for being patient, but we're now ready to go with you guys. And we're going to be talking, of course, about Avery and about uh, owls for Avery. I'll start with Kathy. And I'd like to ask you about what was supposed to be Avery's two-year-old well visit with her pediatrician. Can you talk about what was discovered at that visit? Sure. Hi, Mark. Thanks for having us. Um, yeah. So unlike Addie's experience, Avery really didn't have any symptoms ahead of time. Um, we just brought her in to the pediatrician for her routine two-year well check. And at that well check, the doctor, you know, they feel their bellies and they just are doing just regular exams. She felt a lump in her abdomen that was not really that concerning and just said, feels like there might be constipation there. And I said, well, <laughs> she had a dirty diaper this morning, so I don't think that's what it is. Um, but just to be sure and try to figure out what it was, she sent her off for an x-ray right away. Um, and then of course we had to wait for the results of the x-ray. So I actually brought her back to daycare and I went back to work and then, um, she called us back and said, there was a mass there. Come, come right back to the hospital. So, um, I turned right back around, picked her back up from daycare and we went straight to the hospital that same day, um, for a CT scan. And so, um, they discovered that day that there was a tumor growing off of her liver and they told us it was hepatoblastoma. And I literally said to the doctor who was giving me the news, like, can you write that down for me? Because I need to tell my husband, like he was getting ready to leave work and come meet us. And I'm like, I don't think I can even repeat this word. I'd never heard of it before. And I was quite literally in shock because that's not anything that we had expected just from a routine visit at the doctor. Well, well, well you and Christina certainly had the same exact reaction, uh, not expecting anything of the sort as far as a cancer diagnosis. Um, now, I'll ask Ben this question. I'm assuming that you also had never heard of uh, hepatoblastoma had not thought about pediatric liver cancer. How difficult was this for you um, to and, and, uh, and Kathy to wrap your arms around what was happening uh, in such a, a dramatic fashion um, with Avery? Yeah. Hey, Mark, thanks for having us again. And Cody and Christina, it's always nice uh, to see you guys. And, uh, nice to hear <clears throat> the story that we hear um, from you, but it's it's inspiring, and, and you guys are really a, a beacon of light out there in this in this world. Um, no, I my I'm, I'm still not. I haven't wrapped my head around it. Um, you know, we're five years post treatment, and it's still something that is surreal. Uh, when this was all going on, it felt like a bad dream, and I just wanted to wake up, and we couldn't. Um, and so it's it's really difficult because during that time, you have to try to make the best decisions for your, for your daughter when it comes to saving her life. And you don't even, you're, you're completely lost. Um, it's like, I, like I said, it, it's, we would get the bad news and bad news. And it was just like, you, you, you tried to wake up um, and you couldn't. So, so to answer your question, I guess uh, my, our head is still not fully wrapped around the fact that, that she went through what she went through, but um, you know, we get, we get better every day. Well, you obviously uh, were able to put one foot in front of the other, even though you had no clue that anything like this was going to happen. And, you, and, and of course, you did the right things. Now, Kathy, Avery had a successful surgery 
followed by what you describe as a mop-up cycle of chemo. Unfortunately, her cancer had metastasized. How long after her surgery did you find out um, that her cancer had spread to her lungs? So after that initial resection, she was scheduled for four rounds of that cleanup or mop-up chemotherapy. And it was basically one round per month. So four months after the surgery and all of the chemo was done, she was scheduled to get another CT scan. And so at that scan, we were expecting clear scans, good news. We were going to be all done. And that is not what we got. We learned at that after that scan that um, there was um, metastasis in one of her lungs. And so she went from stage two to stage four, which was a lot more scary and more serious. So um, the journey continued for quite some more time after that. And uh, I would say that once you found that out, as uh, as Dr. O'Neill had said uh, early in the podcast, her chances of survival really went under 50% from hopefully 90%. So that certainly, even though you might not have known that, um, that was possibly what you were facing. Now, Ben, can you talk about the next two years, which included a lot of chemotherapies and surgeries? Yeah, and my wife's brain is so much more chronological than mine. Um, so feel free to chirp in here anytime, Kathy. Um, of course, and a lot uh, happened in two years. So it's <laughs> so she would end up having a total of, of 19 cycles of chemo, um, six surgeries, and that includes the one taking out her port. Um, it was, it was one of those things where, where Cody and Christina alluded to that it, it, the, nothing was working. Um, we had gone, we were in Dallas, Dallas, Texas, um, at the time living in Plano and she was being treated at children, uh, Dallas children's hospital. And we were told, uh, pretty quickly to head down to, to Texas children's down in uh, Houston, which we know now has a fantastic, uh, hepatoblastoma liver tumor program. And, uh, we met with uh, an oncologist there and they recommended that we get her on uh, ICE uh, uh, chemo. It's a chemo regimen. Um, Dr. O'Neill will probably be able to tell what uh, the ICE stands for. I, I, I don't even have it in my head right now, but uh, we knew at the time that that was like the most brutal thing that she could have gotten um, the harshest uh, chemo regimen. And we were so early on in her treatment that we just, again, we couldn't wrap our head around what was happening. We felt like we still had a fighting chance and we didn't um, want to do that one right away. We actually ended up doing that. That was one of the last things that we tried because we got to the point where nothing else was working. So we had to go back to that. Um, everything from, from week-long hospital visits to fevers and having to bring her to the emergency room because of fevers and her low uh, immunity um, those next two years were just, we were fighting, she was fighting for her life. We were fighting for her life. Um, but she was, um, overall a, a very happy, uh, I, I don't even kind of, it's kind of weird to say, but healthy two, three and four year old, uh, she'd come home from surgery and we had a jungle gym in our backyard and she just had surgery on her lungs. Four days later, she was climbing all over that thing. So it's like her, her zest for life and her, her fight, um, is something that carried her her mother and I through. I think I can speak for Kathy when I say that. I think I'll continue to ask, uh, stay with you. Your doctors giving you a prognosis that made uh, uh, you feel at all um, 
you know, confident or hopeful. Yes. Dr. Andrew Martin down in uh, Dallas uh, was her oncologist down there. And um, he, he was very patient and he would, he would sit, you know, something that I've learned in my job when you have parents sitting in front of you uh, that you need to take your time and to be present with them. And he always was. So he had the utmost confidence in the world that he himself might not have been an expert on the subject, but he was reaching out to the people that he needed to reach out to, to get us the best answers. It felt like, and with that confidence, we knew that when we met with him and that when he would, he would say, well, there's, we just did another scan and it's, there's another spot in her lung or, or we're going to try this uh, because I spoke to, you know, Dr. A and B over, you know, uh, in Cincinnati, Dr. Geller. And um, we, we, we did have confidence. Um, we didn't know any better not to. Um, and again, going back, if he, I feel like we, we got very lucky with him because like I said, he, he gave us the time and he gave us the energy and he, he, he cried with us and he uh, he was frustrated with us and we could tell. Um, and it was just one of those things that we knew and, and we were doing our own research and we'd come to those meetings with a list of things too. Um, but yeah, we had the utmost confidence that we were getting the right answers, but that's the problem and why we're here is because there weren't any right answers at the time, it, it seemed. Now, Kathy, I'll uh, turn to you and ask, how are you able to connect, and I could be pronouncing this incorrectly, but I'll try it, with Dr. Uh, Chow. Is that close? Chow. Okay. Uh, now, he's at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. He's a pediatric surgeon. Now, he felt confident that he could remove whatever was cancer, uh, well, whatever cancer was left in her lung. Right. Um, the The lung that he operated on was a lung that had previously also been operated on. She, it actually, the cancer metastasized to both lungs. And so the surgeon who had removed the first met on that lung, what the surgeon in Dallas was not comfortable because it was very risky to go back into that same area and operate in that same place again. And so he was hesitant to perform another surgery. And so, you know, kind of going back to the prognosis, we're like, well, we don't have another option. We've already tried ice, um, which is the most intense form of chemo that she could have gotten. And that didn't work. Um, So it's surgery or maybe a clinical trial that didn't exist yet. So we, we, um, you know, we talked to Dr. Martin, her oncologist in Dallas, and, um, he actually was in connections with Dr. Geller in Cincinnati for many months before this, um, just because we had researched who are the hepatoblastoma experts in the nation, you know, who knows anything about this disease. And that's how we found Dr. Geller. So those two doctors had been kind of, um, discussing her treatment plan along the way. And Dr. Tiao works with Dr. Geller in Cincinnati. So um, they had already been following along with Avery's story for a while. And so when we got to the point where um, Dallas said, we're not doing this, um, we they said, we will. And so Dr. Tiao um, said he would do the surgery. So we hopped on a plane and we flew to Cincinnati as fast as we could get there. Um, and he performed the surgery to remove that last met and was successful in doing so. So, um, after that point, none of the cancer had come back and Avery has been cancer-free for 
over five years now. And I, I don't, this is not a funny story, I don't think, because when, when it comes to this, but it, you, ha- you have to find humor in some events. Uh, we got to Cincinnati <laughs> so fast um, that we didn't have a plan for getting home. Uh, and we were meeting with Dr. Tiao in the recovery room. And I nonchalantly asked, so when are we able to go home? And he's like, well, you guys, do you have a car? I'm like, no, we, we flew here. And he goes, well, Avery can't fly for like, I don't know, it was several months because yeah, she had just had time. surgery on her lungs. So <laughs> my parents were down there from Indiana. Uh, we flew up from Texas and her, Kathy's parents drove up from Florida to pick the girls up. And they went on a cross country road trip shortly after Avery had her lung surgery. And I think looking back, that was a pretty memorable experience for all of them. Well, uh, it's certainly a, a good story to tell, obviously, because things worked out as well as they did. Now, uh, I'll stay with you, Ben. It's now been five years. And five years. is now in the Survivor Clinic at Lurie Hospital in Chicago. How is she doing? And she's, have yeah, there been side effects? From- yeah, she's... She's doing wonderful. She's I'm an educator, so I'm I'm following her very closely through school to see if there was has been any learning um, deficits uh, caused from the chemo that she's had. And so far, um, I mean, she doesn't listen to me, but I think that's pretty typical for a nine year old girl. Um, We weren't sure if it was her high frequency hearing loss or the fact that she's a nine year old. (laughs) That's why she's not paying attention to mom and dad. But piggybacking off of that, she does have experience high frequency hearing loss. Um, uh, We we learned at the last appointment that this is not something that should affect her day to day, but rather her, uh, I guess, the the analogy that was used was her enjoyment of of listening to music, like the fidelity of music. She's not going to hear all the notes, which I think we can, I mean, that stinks, but I think that's going to be okay. Um, Her kidneys are functioning at about a 75% um, level. So she does have chronic uh, kidney disease. Uh, there is a calcium buildup in her kidneys because of, of the chemo that she took. And she has recently developed a very tiny uh, kidney stone, um, which we are trying to get her to drink more and more water um, before they have to put on her on a medication for that. Uh, but again, going back to the nine-year-old girl part that she's she's stuck in her ways and she doesn't quite understand the the, the, the brevity or the, the the big deal of her doing that. So So we're trying to get her to drink water. Um, we're monitoring her heart because some of the chemo that she received uh, can have uh, effects on her heart. Um, what else am I missing there, Kathy? Um, well, she her first appointment at the survivorship clinic is in February. So right now we haven't actually been there, but I know they're going to start monitoring, monitoring her bone density and then also hormone levels as she gets older and goes through puberty. Um, and then other, other things like that. So that's all coming up in the next few months. Lots of just monitoring everything. Now I'll stay with you, Kathy, as you started the Owls for Avery Foundation in response to what Avery has been through. You wanted to help kids similarly diagnosed uh, to beat this um, disease as she has. What is the mission of your foundation? Um, I mean, it's similar to Christina and Cody and why they started theirs, you know, research. We just learned through our journey that, or Avery's journey, that there just isn't a lot of research being done on children, childhood cancers in general, let alone hepatoblastoma. Um, You know, we learned that 4% of government funding for cancers goes towards all the childhood cancers combined, including leukemia and other ones that 
are more common that you've heard of. And so just um, we really wanted to help fund the research for better treatment options for kids. Now I'm going to stay with you as you must have been quite a very popular sorority girl <laughs> at Florida State uh, as your foundation has a name that was in, uh, inspired your, by your experience there. And obviously the sorority has meant uh, a lot to you. Can you talk about the name and the um, connection? To, sure. KKG sorority. Yeah, I was a Kappa Kappa Gamma at Florida State, and our mascot um, for the sorority was an owl. So when Avery was diagnosed, um, a lot of my sorority sisters just rallied and said, you know, we how can we help our friend and her daughter? And so they just started sending gifts and little, well, I shouldn't say little, all sized owls, stuffed animal owls to Avery just to cheer her up. Um, and so this hashtag started hashtag owls for Avery. And so people would um, send her little toys to make her happy. They We actually had t-shirts made and people would wear the shirts on big days where she had, had scans or she was going to the hospital for chemo or having a surgery and just in support of our family. And so that hashtag was going around for two years while she was in treatment. Um, so naturally, after her treatment was done and she was in remission and we created this foundation, we felt like it should be named the Owls for Avery Foundation. Um, and that's where the name came from. Well, it's certainly a great name. Now, Ben, can you talk about uh, any of the past events that you've had for your foundation? Obviously, these things cost money uh, and perhaps some that are coming up in the future. Yeah, sure. We, um, along with the rest of the world, over the past couple of years with COVID, we've we've really um, slowed down um, and, and stopped some of those fundraising efforts because so many people um, were were going through so many hard times, and they they still are. So it's it's one of those things where we've gotten with our board, and Kathy and I have discussed whether or not we wanted to get our um, foundation jump started again and really start hitting hitting the pavement for, for fundraising efforts. And we, we think, we think we're there. We're still very cognizant of the fact that people in this economy are still struggling to make ends meet. Um, and so it's, it can be difficult to ask for money, but what we can do is raise awareness and that's free. Um, and so that's, that's what we do. Uh, we, we are small potatoes in terms of fundraising, um, compared to Cody and Christina, but we have people out there that, um, have set up monthly, uh, donations to our foundation. Um, we currently have a little uh, nest of money that we have uh, presented um, some of the most recent meetings that we've had with our board uh, or to our board um, on, on who is going to be the recipient of, of, of that. Um, uh, there's so many good things happening right now in the world of hepatoblastoma research that we are very confident that no matter who our board uh, uh, chooses that the money is going to a very uh, productive uh, thing. Um, in the past, we've, we've hosted golf tournaments. We've done anything from, from cornhole. Uh, that's something in Indiana. I, I don't know if anybody else is familiar with what cornhole is, but um, uh, you know, the boards and the bags and all those things like horseshoes uh, we've, we've hosted those we've um, sold uh, t-shirts and we've just done Facebook uh, fundraisers in the past as well. Um, I think uh Right now, we just figured that uh, the month of September, 19 days in, 
just through Facebook fundraisers, we've raised almost $3,000, and which I think is is for, for us two folks from a small town in Indiana is, is pretty awesome. Um, it's the power of social media. And, and, I, and I, I deal with, you know, I would say half of the issues that I deal with at school stem from things that happen on social media. But I'll always tell those students the story of uh, the power that it can also have. And that's, uh, we didn't always feel like we were on an island when Avery was sick because of our network um, that could have only happened through, you know, the hashtag and, and, and Facebook and, and various social media platforms. Of course, there are many ways to do fundraising. And I think the way you're doing it, um, particularly, and, and you've had a very good month because this being uh, Childhood uh, uh, Cancer Awareness Month, September is the most well-known month of the, um, the calendar year for pediatric cancer. Kathy, I'd like to just ask you about you have a number of what you call uh, hepatoblastoma heroes uh, on your website that you highlight. How have you found the stories that go along with these heroes? And do you develop relationships yourselves with these kids and their families? Yeah, I mean, this goes right along with what Ben was saying. Um, we've found almost all of these kids through Facebook or social media of some sort. Um, not only do we have our own Alzheimer's Foundation page where families and people can reach out to us, but we're also part of, there's different groups, hepatoblastoma warriors, um, where families just go to network and ask questions and talk to other families who are dealing with things that they're dealing with. So all of those heroes we've met um, online in one way or another. And yeah, we, we do keep in touch with many of them. Actually, two of them, two of our board members are moms of hepatoblastoma fighters. Um, and so their, their children are some of the heroes. And then, um, we've become closer friends with others. Some, you know, are the same age as Avery. And so they become close with her. And we, we have, um, one little friend who lives only a few hours away from us in Indiana, and they actually came up and um, participated in the the golf tournament that we had for the foundation um, last year. And so, yeah, that the keeping in touch with the families has been um, really important to us. And it also just, you know, it it makes it more real for people who are not living this in the day-to-day -to, -day to see those um, those kids and, and the families that they're really there. So in addition to, uh, to what you're doing on your website, as a final question, I'll start with you, Kathy. What has Avery taught you and what has this experience taught you? Um, well, I have learned from her that she's a very tough cookie and um, that most people and most kids are really tougher than you think you are. Um, you know, we have people say to us all the time, you're so strong and I could never do that. And, you know, you guys are tough. And, and I'm just, and I tell them right back, I'm like, you're tough too. And if you were in our shoes, you'd be able to do it. And it's um, that just, you're stronger than you think you are. And Ben, how would you respond to that? Yeah. So the, uh, Kathy took the, the Avery answer for that, but I think I've learned from other people throughout this process um, and, and that's kind of the Nike slogan. And I, I am a big Nike sneakerhead, but I will say that it's, it's just do it. Um, the way, when you're going through a crisis like that and you're fighting for your life or for somebody else's life, you don't know what help you need. You don't know, 
you don't know what you need. And so a very common thing and, and is for people to say, hey, if you need something, just let me know. And you don't know at the time to, to, to what to say. Um, and as a matter of fact, that's not a bad thing to ask somebody. Um, that's very caring and, and it shows that you, you care. But uh, we learned it was the people that just did it. Um, when we would get home from a week-long stay in the hospital, there'd be frozen dinners waiting for us on our porch. Um, uh, we would post on our resource that or re, on our uh, networks that, you know, Avery had spiked another fever, going back to the hospital, and there'd be Starbucks there waiting for us uh, that just people went and picked up. So I, I, we learned a lot from Avery, but I also learned a lot from that uh, from people that people are still good and people still care and people still love and to, to just do. Um, don't ask, just do. And where can people get in touch with you uh, if, if they want to learn more about your situation and certainly your foundation? Sure. Alsforavery.org um, is our website. Um, we're in the process of updating that and, and continuing to tell her story when you know, we're five years post-treatment, but her story is not done. And we, we have been, we haven't kept that up as much as we, we, we should and we will. Um, but we also have a Facebook page, Alice for Avery Foundation, um, hashtag Alice for Avery. Um, you, you can you can find us there and, and we're happy to reach out. But if I have a Google alert, so I get emails every time hepatoblastoma is mentioned across the World Wide Web. And so don't be surprised if I reach out to you. Well, I want to thank both uh, Kathy, uh, both you and Ben for coming on my show uh, again, giving such a great presentation on your wonderful daughter. Thankfully, she's doing well and you've got a great foundation. And I want to wish you the best of luck as time goes on as well. Mark, we appreciate that very much. Thank you so much for having us, Mark. Well, uh, you have a great day. Now, I would like to welcome, and thank you for your patience, by the way. Uh, th now, that is if Dr. Uh, Nunez and, and Dr. Wing are actually still here. I assume that they are, but I'd like <laughs> to welcome them to my podcast. And my first question will be to Dr. Wang um, about Eureka Therapeutics and what the mission and the objective is for your company. First of all, Mark, thank you for having us here. And it was very touching hearing the stories from um, Cody, Christina, Ben, and Cassie. Uh, it certainly means a lot to me and Eureka team. Um, Eureka Therapeutics is a clinical stage biopharmaceutical company located in the Bay Area in California. Eureka was founded uh, 16, year, 16 years ago, and I joined the team 14 years ago. We're a group of, I would say, trailblazers focusing on tackling big challenges with continuous innovation. And our mission is to find a cure of cancer. And we believe T-cell therapy is the best approach to deliver the promise. Now, you are a uh, rare disease advocate. Unfortunately, you've had experience with both of your sons who are battling with Hunter's syndrome. How is being someone who's quite familiar with clinical trials and other problems with your own children helped you understand what these families who have children battling um, with uh, hepatoblastoma or another type of pediatric cancer go through? Thank you for the question. Uh, Hunter's syndrome is actually a ultra-rare disease and it's a progressive genetic disease. And the estimated lifespan for those kids is 15 to 20 years. And my sons were diagnosed 
more than 10 years ago, were st still battling this terrible disease, um, participating in various clinical trials that we can identify. So I would say I understand the pain that the families with children um, with liver cancer has gone through. Um, and I understand the pain to even get to the diagnosis and learn about the diagnosis and the possible dreadful outcome. I understand the pain to look for and wait for treatment options for a rare disease. And also the pain to watch your children possibly walking into the early graves. And also the pain to constantly feel, feel the, the hope and despair uh, along the treatment course. So at Eureka, I always emphasize to the team um, that we need to have a high sense of urgency. And we just learned from Dr. O'Neill um, that um, kids with liver um, cancer doesn't really have much choices, especially in the kids who has a relapsed refractory setting disease. Um, and even for kids who are lucky, who are cured by chemotherapy, they always experience lifelong serious side effects. So now Eureka had no problem. So I was just saying that, you know, since Eureka now can provide a potential treatment option for these kids, we should definitely stay uh, active in patient outreach effort to make sure all, all the families know that they have an option. Now, T-cell therapy has been uh, very innovative in the last number of years. And, and this question is going to go to uh, Dr. Nunez. And the success it's had is in treating blood cancers, such as leukemia and lymphoma. Why have those cancers had better luck with CAR T-cell therapies than uh, solid tumors have had? Thank you, Mark, for um, having us here, and, and and thank you so much to, to all of the other podcast guests. It's it's been um, incredible just hearing your stories and hearing Dr. Allison on y'all speak. Um, I um, would love to just start off um, with saying, you know, some background when it comes to T cell therapy. Um, really, what we're doing is we're taking a patient's T cells. This, as Dr. O'Neill mentioned, this is part of your immune system. They're in your blood. So for a patient, this is similar to a blood donation. And we take those T cells and we engineer them to fight your specific type of cancer. Um, and the reason why it's easier for T cell therapy in general to fight blood cancer is that many blood cancers naturally have targets that are already present externally on the cell. And therefore, they're easy to identify and access by the T cell. Also, these uh, targets on these blood cancer cells don't even need to be specific because blood cells can easily be restored after T-cell treatment, um, as you guys have probably heard about, like blood infusions, for example. And this isn't the case for a solid tumor. You, you can't just whack out a, a somebody's, you know, part of their liver and, and hope that you can just put that small piece back. Really, it's, it's um, quite a feat to do something like that for a solid tumor. In addition, blood cancers, they're typically diffused throughout the blood. And so that's where T cells naturally live. They're naturally circulating around in your body. And so it's easier for them to come into contact with those free floating blood cancer cells and destroy them. Um, and actually, you know, over the past decade, T cell therapy has had great success, as you mentioned, Mark, um, in blood cancer, where we actually have a few FDA approved T cell therapies. 
such as uh, Kim Raya and Yaskarta. And actually, um, Emily Whitehead, I just wanted to bring this up because one, it's uh, September, it's Childhood Cancer Awareness Month. Um, also, um, for Emily Whitehead, she was the first pediatric patient to receive T-cell therapy. She actually just celebrated 10 years cancer-free. Um, uh, so we're really excited to hear about that. And she, she actually celebrated that in September as well. So yeah, T-cell therapy has, has had a lot of success, and we believe it's it's due to those reasons. Now, can you talk about uh, with T-cell therapy, how, what are the um, things that you need to make sure that uh, these cells are capable of treating solid tumors? Yeah, thank you for that. Um, so when it comes to creating a T-cell therapy that's capable of treating solid tumors, we believe there are three main challenges that need to be overcome. The first challenge is, is, first challenge is that most solid tumor-specific targets are intracellular, meaning that the targets are actually living within the cell and so they're difficult to target. So you have to find a way to access those intracellular targets. The second big challenge is that you need to be able to infiltrate a solid tumor because solid tumors exist as, as a mass of cells as opposed to blood cancer, which is free-floating throughout the body. The solid tumor is this tight clustered bunch of cells that you need to try to access. And then the third big challenge is, is that these solid tumors, they often create these toxic microenvironments that are really difficult for immune cells, such as T cells, to be able to do their job. And so you have to design a therapy that can overcome these challenges in order to be successful. Now, and I'll continue with you, uh, um, Nicole. You believe that Eureka Therapeutics has two platforms, which are and will continue to help these T cells improve the prognosis of uh, solid tumor cancers. Now, in our case, um, these tumors are associated with pediatric liver cancer, hepatoblastoma, and hepatocellular carcinoma. And these platforms are known as E-alpha and Artemis. Can you, can you first explain uh, E-alpha and how it works in identifying cancer cells? Definitely. Thank you. So, I, you know, I love talking about our technology. Um, you know, I, I'm going to kind of first start with explaining a little bit about, you know, what the acronym is. Um, so first, uh, when it comes to E-alpha, uh, it stands for Eureka's Adaptive Library Panning for Human Antibodies. And it's a, actually a platform um, that we use for, we're essentially an antibody drug discovery engine, where you're able to screen billions of antibodies to identify a lead candidate that is capable of seeking out a target that is unique to the solid tumor cell. And so in the case of pediatric liver cancer, such as hepatoblastoma and hepatocellular carcinoma, we've identified an antibody that is capable of specifically recognizing a particular form of alpha-beta protein, also known as AFP. And so you guys heard this earlier. This is uh, what Cody and Christina from the Foundation of Addis Research and Hepatoblastoma Research Network were talking about. Um, AFP is a common hallmark uh, for the diagnostic and prognosis diagnostic biomarker for pediatric liver cancer. And so we're really trying to specifically go after these um, AFP positive liver tumor cells. Okay, so as, and I'll continue with you on this, as E-alpha finds the cells, mm -hmm. Artemis is able to destroy them. Mm -hmm. So can you explain how Artemis works? 
Definitely. So yeah, similar to EAPA, um, as scientists, we love our acronyms. So Artemis, I, I, I like the name. I feel like it explains a little bit. It's essentially stands for antibody redirected T cells with endogenous modular immune signaling. So what does that mean? Essentially, um, in order to create an Artemis T cell, we're going to take that lead candidate antibody that we found from the E-alpha platform, and we're going to engraft that on the outside of the Artemis T cell. So now once the Artemis T cell encounters a solid tumor cell, that endogenous modular immune signaling part kicks in and it will activate and fight off the solid tumor cell. And in addition to that, this Artemis cell has been designed to be able to infiltrate inside the solid tumor while withstanding that toxic microenvironment that the solid tumor has. So it's really this two component system being able to seek out specifically that, that solid tumor cell and being able to activate these pathways so you can also specifically destroy that solid tumor cell. Now I'll turn to Dr. Wang again. As I said before, you've had a lot of personal experience uh, dealing with clinical trials. Now I'd like to ask you about your clinical trial that you were involved with, uh, along with uh, Dr. O'Neill, um, which is focused on uh, this pediatric liver cancer issue. From your perspective, what are you hoping that this clinical trial will accomplish after uh, over the next few years as you monitor its progress? Sure. Um, as we just mentioned, the current trial is conducted at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and in Boston's Children's Hospital um, and under Dr. O'Neill's supervision. Over the next few years, I hope we could demonstrate the safety and initial efficacy of the Artemis T-cell product in kids with liver cancer. With that, we hope we could attract more treating physicians to work with us so that we can quickly expand the trial nationwide. And I'm curious to know how you actually got in touch with Dr. O'Neill, you being where your location is, 3,000 miles away, and uh, in California, and she being in Boston. Yeah, we uh, met at ASCO conference uh, meeting back three years ago, actually. And she... Allie, Dr. O'Neill was actually in front of her poster, which talked about her study on AFP. And I think she was having an interview uh, with a reporter on her study. So it was at the end of the poster session and nobody was around. I was the only one standing next to her, listening to her uh, kind of interview session. And then after she she's done with that, I told her that, you know what, Eureka is actually uh, developing a therapy targeting AFP. And then she immediately jumped into uh, this kind of topic and asked me, do you provide treatment to the pediatric uh, kids? Um, and uh, I said, at that time, we only have trial fo focusing on adult HCC, but I will get back to her after talking with our internal team. Well, there's, uh, you know, being in the uh, right place at the right time is always a good thing. So you certainly were in the uh, right place at the right time. Now, it looks as if um, there are going to be 15 patients, and I'm going to stay with you here, uh, Dr. Wang, involved in the phase one part of the trial. How will you measure, measure its success, and what will the next step be if it is successful? This is a 
Good question. So the first part of this trial is to evaluate the safety profile of our Atmos T-cell product and then identify the recommended phase two dose. Once the appropriate dose level is determined, we could move on to the expansion phase to continue evaluate the safety, but more importantly, the efficacy profile of our product. Okay, and if the trial proves to be successful as you want it to be, how long will it take before the trial actually becomes part of treatment for these kids? Well, you know, I don't want to throw a depressing number here. <laughs> and, and as we, we're facing a uh, ultra rare disease here, um, but I would say seven years is probably already an optimistic estimation in this population. Uh, with that being said, uh, I, I want to point out there are actually two important um, parts uh, in this um, battle. And I think one is definitely the efficacy. If the efficacy is much better than the current treatment option, then the program can be put on an accelerated regulatory track. That will definitely speed up everything. Um, and the other crucial part, you know, from the kind of the industry perspective and also from my own perspective is advocacy. Um, the effective advocacy will definitely help us overcome a lot of regulatory hurdles, especially in the ultra-rare disease indication. So I hope with all the combined efforts and, of course, with the efficacy um, that we will evaluate along the trial, uh, we will be able to speed up uh, the whole development of the program. I'm curious to know, and uh, either Dr. Wang or Dr. Nunez uh, can take this question, how much a trial like this actually costs? And is seven years sort of the average for a clinical trial uh, of, of this um, stature? And why, and why does it take so long? Although maybe it doesn't take so long from your perspective as it does for, from a child or a family perspective. So if either one of you want to take that question. So, yes, um, in terms of, so I, I will take the, 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 the later part uh, about how long, um, seven years, it sounds long. So, and as, you know, from the parent perspective, from the family perspective, you know, how long can we wait? Um, but this is a ultra rare disease and the patient recruitment is definitely a big challenge, as you all know. And ultra-rare disease also means there's not much research done. Um, there's no um, even solid data to compile the data to, to um, evaluate the current standoff options in terms of the you know, overall response rate, overall survival. Yes, there are st small studies here and there, um, but we need to have a combined effort to really assess uh, what we are facing now, uh, comparing to uh, you know the, the the new option. So so combining all those things, it makes the especially the clinical trial facing ultra rare disease very challenging. Well, I can imagine the challenge is it's unbelievable. Now, let's assume and hope that. This trial works, obviously, in the first phase, and as you get closer to 
uh, actually having it at the bedside of the, of the children. What would you say, say 10 years from now, would be the future for pediatric uh, liver cancer, um, whether it's, uh, well, we'll, well, since we've been talking mostly about hepatoblastoma uh, on this podcast, where do you think it would uh, uh, fit, uh, say, a decade from now? And is there a lot of uh, real promise to advance the cure rate um, or uh, the the clinical trial certainly uh, has a, um, a part in it or, or maybe most of it is involved in um, you know, uh, in relapses. So, so where would you say it would be down the road? That's a, that's a great question. And so, uh, this is my take here. Um, so pediatric liver cancer is an arterial disease. And in general, individuals with arterial disease is an overlooked group, as we know. So I'm actually very proud as an employee that Eureka is committed to bring the cutting edge technology and hope to this community. And we all know the importance of early diagnosis and early access to treatment. Uh, Yet in reality, there are so many hurdles that you need to go through before you can access the most effective treatment. Um, So I, I think it takes a village to realize it. It's essentially a combined efforts from the treating physicians, the pharmaceutical industries, the patient and their families, the disease advocates, the policymakers, and of course, the regulatory agency. Um, so I give you some example. In my son's case, we actually work closely with the physicians and the patient community to advocate the needs of early access to treatment. And with years of efforts, MPS2, my son's uh, diagnosis, was finally added into the National Newborn Screening Panel early this year. Uh, It's too late for my sons, but the future babies, I'm very optimistic. The future future babies who are born with Hunter syndrome, they will have a better and brighter future. So um, I'm optimistic about our science uh, that can hold the promise of improving cancer patient outcomes. But similarly, instead of just being optimistic, I would say we, everyone here, should take actions together with a sense of urgency for our loved ones and for the next generations. Certainly a great message. I just, I just want to add. Mark. Uh, yes. I'm sorry. This, this is Cody. If I could just yes. add in. Um, I'm, I'm very excited about this trial, and the, the reason for that, and I, I absolutely hope for their success, is wouldn't it be amazing if we could eliminate a cancer with all the host of side effects eliminated? You know, the, the hearing loss, the thinning of heart walls, the reproductive issues, all of those things. So the, the fact that they're so ingenious in in looking for this kind of solution. Uh, I I, I think it's wonderful. And I would love for something like this to be frontline therapy in the future. Well, I think I'm glad. I certainly hope so too. Cody, thank you for, for, for um, uh, giving us that answer. And and I'm glad that you uh, said that because that would be just an incredible thing. Uh, These side effects are just so, so difficult, I'm sure. And uh, anything that, that, that could be done to ease the burden 
on uh, the parents and the uh, the kids and, of course, the, uh, the oncologists and everybody else who was involved. I would just like to ask Dr. Nunez one more question. Um, and I would ask if anybody is, uh, whoever is still on the podcast after it's over, just to stay for a couple of minutes if you have a chance. But what has your experience like been with Eureka uh, Therapeutics um, as you work with you yourself are a, a very accomplished doctor and you work with so many brilliant people who are trying to, to find solutions to these uh, problems, which have been around for too long a time. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Um, so I, my journey has been incredibly um, rewarding. And, you know, I, I've, I've had such a great experience so far with Eureka, where I actually started off as a, as a scientist at the bench, and I, I've now transitioned to focus more on our regulatory affairs and patient engagement. And um, I will say, you know, Eureka, we're, you know, we're, we're really a smaller biotech company that is focused on trying to change the, the treatment options that are available to people who are fighting really difficult cancers. And there's something that is amazing about working with the community of scientists, as, as Pay mentioned, that have a sense of calling and urgency and they want to go to work every day. They there there there's meaning to what we do. And so I really believe in our technology. I think that you know if we can show this you know just talking about the hope for the future, I think if we can show this the the efficacy, the safety that we are hoping to see that we have seen in our in vitro and in vivo studies to date that I, I think that T-cell therapy could go be, you know, beyond liver cancer and start making these impacts in other types of cancers that are afflicting people. So, you know, I, I think that it's, you know, we need to look to new options and, you know, they've tried chemo for, it's, it's the century old technique, you know, people have been trying radiation and they've tried, you know, just surgery and a whole host of other types of drugs. I, I think that T-cell therapy, this is, this is the future and this is where the science is going. And so I'm really excited to see, um, you know, what we're able to accomplish. And I think, you know, pediatric liver cancer is going to be the start. Well, that's certainly a uh, very, very hopeful um, uh, thought that you have. And, and everybody, of course, is 100% in agreement because, uh, again, the the, uh, the CAR T cells have been great with uh, the blood cancers. And, and if they be, can eventually approach the uh, the solid tumors starting uh, with hepatoblastoma, that would be fantastic. I want to thank both of you, first of all, for being so patient. We had uh, all a lot of guests beforehand and to stay online for probably an hour and a half, maybe longer before you got your chance uh, was very much appreciated. And I uh, really uh, so honored to be able to, to interview you and uh, um, Nicole, you put this together and I couldn't be happier that, that you did. Uh, thank you very, very much. And I want to wish you the best of luck as time goes on. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Mark. I would like to thank all of you who listened to this podcast. This was a new experience for me as I spoke with seven people in the course of nearly an hour and 40 minutes. And as I said on a couple of occasions, my guests were more than patient in being able to work together to hopefully create a podcast 
that was more than revealing on a number of fronts in this hepatoblastoma fight, which is one more pediatric cancer, which must be eradicated to the highest degree possible. I would like to thank Dr. Allison O'Neill from Dana-Farber and Boston Children's Hospital for giving such a masterful tutorial on what both hepatoblastoma and hepatocellular carcinoma are. Christina and Cody Stuyvesant for talking about their beloved daughter, Adelaide, who was only able to be on this earth for three years and 17 days, and what they are doing with their Addie's Research Foundation. Kathy and Ben Braden for speaking about their beloved daughter, Avery, who now has graduated to a survivorship program, and what they have done with their Owls for Avery Foundation. And finally, to Drs. Pei Wang and Nicole Nunez. It must be a very difficult situation for Dr. Wang, as both of her sons are still facing the daunting Hunter syndrome, which has a very short life expectancy for both of them. And yet she was able to beautifully explain Eureka Therapeutics and what her company is doing for this pediatric liver cancer cause. Dr. Nunez not only was able to explain for us layman the platforms of E-Alpha and Artemis, but she also took the time to bring together all of these wonderful guests to my podcast. This is Mark Levine, and please tune in on Thursday when I will speak with Jeff Danik, who is the director of the Poses Jewish Community Center, and Joellen Brubelow, who is the camp director of its Horizon Day Camp.